As we come to God's word, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your spirit to move in our hearts and our minds as we explore quite a difficult topic, Lord. And, and some of us are quite perplexed, some of us are quite emotional about this whole issue of sexuality and the world standards. And we pray that uh, you will help and guide us in the right way. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Now last week in the, from the minister's desk, I addressed some concerns over a drag queen roadshow. On the 18th of August at the Hangout, that's the youth centre just along the road, two transvestites spoke to a dozen or so Cromwell teens. I, I quote from their promotional material. Rainbow Story Time New Zealand Tour offers free events for teens to toddlers promoting a message of acceptance, diversity, inclusion and being kind. And there was a follow-up article I see in, on Thursday's bulletin about their visit. Now, I don't want to directly address this particular visit. I wasn't there for what was said, and on face value, the motivation was laudable. However, their visit does have the effect of normalising and even promoting their lifestyle, a lifestyle that's opposed to biblical standards on sexuality. So as Christ followers, how do we respond to something like this? How do we react when the world puts increasing pressures on us to conform to its values and not God's? How do we resist Satan's encouragement to treat God's commands as suggestions? How do we stand firm when we choose God's word, but then we're mocked or abused for being intolerant? Now, these questions are not new. It was similar in biblical days. And this is why Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And it's been the same in every generation, in every culture, in every age. The world is trying to mould us into its shape. Now what we're pressured to be conformed into changes with generations, with cultures and every age. And in the New Zealand culture today, it's in the area of sexuality where the biggest battleground is between us and the world. So this morning we're going to explore a biblical approach to understanding sexuality from a biblical point of view, but and more importantly in resisting being conformed to this world's view of sexuality. And we'll do this in three areas. We'll see that the pressure to be conformed to the world is actually a scheme of the devil. And we'll dip into Ephesians chapter 6 to see this. We'll then look at how Jesus addressed this very issue in John chapter 8. And then we'll go back to Ephesians 6 to see how we can use the armour of God to help us respond. So three things. When it comes to being conformed to the world, we'll see that it's a scheme of the devil is addressed by Jesus and is resisted with the help of the armour of God. So, a scheme of the devil. Now, the pressure to reject God's ways is one of the devil's key strategies to destroy us. Something the Bible clearly warns us against. We see this in Ephesians chapter 6 from verse 11. Ephesians chapter 6 from verse 11. Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. The schemes of the devil. 
And where do we see such schemes? Well, if we think back to Adam and Eve, who were generously given free access to the garden and all of the delights therein except for the fruit from two trees. And as Eve gazed on the fruit, Satan sidled up to her and whispered in her ear, it looks good, doesn't it? God's holding back from you. You really deserve this fruit. And besides, this whole not eating the fruit thing, that's just a suggestion, really. Go on, take some. And the devil's scheme worked. Think back to the Ten Commandments and Moses coming down the mountain with those two tablets. And already the Israelites had made a golden calf and were worshipping it. And Satan had whispered in their ear, Yes, these commands of God are good most of the time, but when push comes to shove, they're only suggestions. You can worship this idol. And the devil's scheme worked. And I could go on. But this is what we're up against. The Bible is very clear in areas of sexuality. Sex is only to be in the context of marriage between a husband and wife. No exceptions. That's what the Bible says time and time again. And Satan is whispering in our ear and saying, that's just a suggestion. You can do that if you want, but really at the end of the day, it's just a suggestion. And this is the pressure that we're under to conform. This is the scheme of the devil in this area of sexuality. But then we think of Jesus, who was tempted himself three times in the desert, tempted by the devil to consider God's word as suggestions. Jesus, Jesus saw through Satan's plan, saw through his scheme and resisted and said, no, these are not suggestions. This is God's word and I will stand on God's word. And Jesus resisted the temptation. And Satan's scheme failed on that day. And Satan's scheme failed on Good Friday and on Resurrection Sunday and on every day that Christ followers stand on God's word and will say, we will resist the pressure to be conformed to the ways of the world. So let's assume for the moment that you are going to follow, with me, follow me. Not everyone agrees with what I've been saying, but let's assume for the moment that you do. The question becomes, how are Christ followers to respond when confronted with sexual practices that are outside God's word? How are we to respond? How are we to respond to any sexual activity outside that of a husband and wife within marriage? And so Jesus addresses this very same issue. For in our gospel reading from John, we see Jesus dealing with sexual behaviour that is not between husband and wife. And we pick this up in John uh, chapter 8 from verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? So let's just spend a bit of time with the background here. The sexual misbehaviour is adultery. Who are the main players? Well, there's Jesus. But also, there's a confrontation that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the scribes, set up. Now, who are the scribes and the Pharisees? Well, they are the religious leaders, key religious leaders in Jesus' day. And they knew the God, they knew the word of God well. They knew it back to front. However, they were also happy to misuse God's word. Now, these accusations of the woman 
and caught in adultery. These accusations that were labelled at this woman are found in two places in the Bible. So, so where are the scribes and the Pharisees are coming from with this accusation? Well, first of all, the Ten Commandments. The seventh commandment out of the ten says, you shall not commit adultery. It's black and white. The second reference they're talking about is Leviticus 20, verse 10. And reads this, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbour, both the adulterer and the adulteress must surely be put to death. Sounds very barbaric, doesn't it, from our point of view? But from an outsider looking into the story, it appears that the religious leaders were trying to be obedient to God's word. But in fact, they were twisting God's word. They were mishandling God's word to suit their evil intent. So how are they mishandling God's word? Well, first of all, they leave something out, and second of all, they add something extra. Okay, So this is how they're mishandling God's word. They miss something out, and they add something extra. What have they added extra? Well, the first thing they've added extra is the mode of death. Nowhere in those two Old Testament passages does it say that the woman must be stoned. That's their interpretation. But it's not as important as what they've left out. Because in Leviticus 20, verse 10, it's very clear that the man and the woman must be brought to justice, both of them. You notice who's missing here? The man. Now, if the woman was caught in the act of adultery, and we're told that twice, I don't think I have to explain it to you, but you cannot commit adultery by yourself. There must have been a man in the mix. And so you wonder why the Pharisees brought the woman to justice and not the man. It's a bigger mission. And so can you see how the religious leaders are twisting the word of God for the evil intent? And what is their intent? Well, we see this in verse 6. What were they on about? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. You see... In Jesus' day, only the Roman occupiers had the power of life and death. So the religious leaders or the civic Jewish leaders, they could not kill anyone. If they could, they would not have taken Jesus on Good Friday to Pilate. If they had the authority to kill, they would have killed Jesus on the spot. But they, had, they would have been in big trouble with the Romans. So they took Jesus to Pilate. And this is what they're hoping to do here. They're hoping to trap Jesus. Because if Jesus said she must be stoned, then they would be able to accuse Jesus to the Roman authorities and Jesus could be arrested. He'd certainly be in trouble. But if Jesus said, no, let her go, don't stone her, then the Jewish leaders could have blamed Jesus and said, look, he doesn't treat the word of God seriously. He's teaching against the law of Moses. So the religious leaders are trapping Jesus in what's called a catch-22 situation. A damned if he does and a damned if he doesn't. That's their plan. So how does Jesus respond? Does he fall into their trap? Does he join the religious leaders in accusing this lady, or does he, does he let the lady off the hook? We see the second part of verse 6 and verse 7. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Jesus has turned the tables in a very, very clever way. He's put them in a damned if they do and damned if they don't. You see, God's word's clear. 
No one is without sin. Only God is holy. If they were to throw a stone, that would by implication mean that they were without sin, that they were holy, and that was blasphemy. And of course, if they didn't throw a stone, they were caught in their own trap because then they, you could be accused them of saying they don't follow God's law. And so Jesus has trapped them completely and they have nowhere to move. Verse 8. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before her. This is all in very public. You know, we're told that Jesus had come to the temple and was teaching people. So there were people watching. And so they saw this group of religious leaders slinking away. And so the point was not lost on the crowd. But what about the woman? What's to happen to her? No doubt she's guilty. We can't argue that. Is Jesus going to let her off or is he going to condemn her? So we pick that again up in verse 10. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Notice the mercy and the wisdom of Jesus, that he could extend grace, but not compromise the word of God. Because her accusers accused her no longer, neither was Christ. But there's a condition, and it's a significant condition. She must sin no more. She must bring her behavior in line with God's word. Jesus did not say, well, I won't condemn you, and next time be more careful when you commit adultery. He didn't say that, did he? (laughs) He said, I do not condemn you, sin no more. Jesus extends compassion, but is firm on the word of God. And here we have the pattern for us as Christ followers. When we respond to those whose sexual lifestyle does not align with the word of God, whether it be casual sex, whether it be living together before marriage, whether it be same-sex relationships, whether it be the drag queens or any of the other variation from God's word, We are not to be like the Pharisees who aggressively condemn those people whose lifestyles are outside the word of God. No, we are to be like Christ, which is to look for areas of compassion, but to be firm on God's standards. There's one thing you take away today, whether you agree with me or not. It's Jesus was compassionate yet firm with this lady in the area of sexuality And that is the response of all Christ followers. And we need to be compassionate because Christ has shown us compassion in this area. And you may say to yourself, well, I haven't committed adultery. How has Christ shown me compassion? Well, if we go to the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about the Ten Commandments. He's giving his view on the Ten Commandments. And he comes to the seventh one. And this is what he says. Matthew Chapter 5, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So in the area of sexuality, none of us is innocent. We all stand before God guilty in this area. It could have been us, any one of us, in that place of that woman. Because in our heart, we have committed adultery. And Jesus says, 
I do not condemn you. I forgive you. And this is why our response to people whose lifestyle outside the Bible is one of compassion but firmness. Because that's what Christ has done to us. He has shown us compassion but has been firm. And because we have experienced the forgiveness of God, we should be quick to show compassion, quick to share the good news of how Christ has set us free and we are forgiven. So what about the armour of God? We've looked at the fact is that this pressure to conform to the sexual standards of the world is a scheme of the devil. We've seen Jesus' response, which was compassionate and firm. Now, where does the armour of God fit in? The armour of God is found in detail in Ephesians chapter 6. And in our series through Ephesians, we're only up to the end of chapter 2. So I've skipped ahead. And it's because I felt this was a a classic case study on how to use the armour of God. Now, when we come to Ephesians 6 uh, in a wee while, I'll unpack the armour in more detail. But I want to give you at least a glimpse of how we can use the armour in this particular situation. And so if we go back to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, this is what we've been looking at, where Paul writes, verse 11, put on the whole armour of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We've been looking at standing against the schemes of the devil. How do we use the armour of God? Verse 13 and 14, look for the theme. Therefore take up the whole armour of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore. Now you notice a clear theme with this armour. When it comes to the schemes of the devil, we are to stand against, stand firm, and stand therefore. So when it comes to the world's pressure for us to form to their sexual standards, we are to stand against that pressure and to stand firm for God's standards. And we do that, I'll keep reminding us, we do that with compassion and firmness. Now verse 14, from verse 14 starts to lay out the armour of God. And we have the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, shoes ready to go with the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now if you've been in church circles for any amount of time, you will have heard a sermon on the armour of God. Uh, Some of us heard about it in Sunday school, and I noticed one of our rooms there, Mandy has wonderfully decorated with the sword of the Spirit and some of the armour, and it's great. And we may be a bit fuzzy about how to put it into practice, but at least for many of us, we've come across these ideas. So let me give you an example of how to use all six pieces of the armour in the context of responding to sexual behaviour that's outside God's word. Now, when Judy and I, when we were first married, we decided it would be lovely to have people stay. But what would we do if they were not married, a couple that were not married? So we decided if that happened, uh, we would ask them to sleep in different rooms. Now, living together before marriage is so common in New Zealand that if you were to mention that that was your practice, most people, certainly outside the church, and some inside the church, would say, oh, you must be crazy. Why on earth would you want to do that? Isn't that offensive? Well, this is where the belt, the shoes, and the sword come into play. The belt of truth is the foundation for our decision. 
It's the foundation of the decision. In fact, this whole sermon is all about the belt of truth. And during the week, I've been praying, Lord, help us to fasten this belt of truth around our waist. It's the basis for our decision. Now, if you'd asked Judy and I 25 years ago, we wouldn't have been able to articulate it in this. It's only upon reflection. But it was because we felt that it was God's truth that we made that decision. Now, if a couple asks us why, then we have feet fitted ready with the gospel of peace. With gentleness but firmness, we explain to a couple that are coming to visit and we say separate rooms, why? And then we may even need the sword of the Spirit, not to lop off a head. <laughs> the sword of the Spirit would be a scripture reference. So we might go back to Genesis 2 if they were interested and point out God's standard in Genesis 2, where, where God says that a man to leave his family home, his mother and father, and to join to cleave with his wife. That would be the sword of the Spirit. So can you see how we've used three pieces of the armour in that decision? The belt of truth, which is the foundation for making the decision. The shoes ready to share the gospel of peace so that when we're asked, we have a gracious way of explaining. And the sword of the Spirit is if we delve into the Bible to explain in detail where we come from. However, if you make that sort of decision, you're going to get pushback. You're going to get people that object. Because of our culture, because we're Kiwis, people just don't say, oh, we're going to stay in our hotel. And some, uh, some people might be quite aggressive, quite anti. You might get a phone call from another family member who wants to give you a piece of your mind about that decision. You may even break a relationship. And that's when... The breastplate of righteousness comes in to protect your heart. The helmet of salvation to protect your mind. And the shield of faith to quench the fiery accusations of Satan. The armour of God. Helping us to stand firm against the pressures of the world that would conform us in this area. I'm not saying Judy and I have got it right all the time. And it's been tough. And I know that, I mean... No one's neutral about sexuality. I think God has wired us so that our deepest identity is tied up to our sexuality. So what I'm talking about today will cause reactions in you. And most, if not all of us, have family members or friends whose sexual life does not align with the word of God. And, and I'll, Judy and I are the same. And it's, it's hard to make these calls. And I can't make them for you. I'm just giving you some examples and the Word of God, and you're going to have to work out where you stand. And I, ha I still have some questions. But I'm convinced. I am absolutely convinced, and Christians have taught this all through the ages, that you will only flourish in your relationships and in your life when you align yourselves with the Word of God. All through the generations, all through the centuries, uh, the church may have articulated it in different ways, but at the end of the day, if your behaviour, lifestyle does not adhere to the word of God, then your relationships and your lifestyle will not flourish. And that's why we're committed to standing on the word of God. So what of our drag queens? What is a suitable response to them offering a preschool and youth program in our community? 
Well, given that it came to my attention on the morning of the program, Phoebe and I got our heads together and we crafted a response to the parents because, of course, it was the parents of teenagers that were immediately affected by this. And our response was on two lines. One was to ask the parents of teenagers to pray for our Cromwell and New Zealand youth, that they may actually hear what God's standards of sexuality are and follow them. I mean, outside the church, a lot of our youth have no idea what I'll be talking about today because it is so prevalent in the world that there are a whole range of sexual conduct that is acceptable but does not line up to the Word of God. So that's a good place to start, I think, to pray for our youth in our church and outside the church that they will hear God's standards and choose to follow them. The second thing we we suggested for parents of teenagers was that because this was well publicised and if their teenager had brought this up or was aware of it, then this was a great opportunity to talk to them, ask them how they thought about it, how they felt, and then just gently explain, well, this is God's standards. I mean, that's one response. I see Timaru, I did a little bit of Googling, and I see there was a lady in Timaru that heard that 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 same tour was coming beforehand, and she organised a petition amongst the churches. And if that petition was worded with compassion and firmness, then that could have been a very good response. So let's sum up, pull together some of the ideas. There's incredible pressure on Christ followers to conform to the standards of the world. And in Christians, there's typical two reactions that we often fall into. One is we get aggressive and angry and stew. And the second one was we think, well, they're consenting adults. They can just do what they want. But we've seen that this is a scheme of the devil. And Jesus is asking us to take the middle road, which is a lot harder. It's a lot harder to look for areas of compassion but to be firm on God's word. The third thing we looked at is that even though this is a scheme of the devil, God has equipped us with the six pieces of the armour for us to stand firm. And we've had a look at one example, and there's others on how we can use this. But I'm going to repeat this because this is key. You will only flourish in your relationships and life when your sexual behaviour aligns with the word of God. And for some people, that's a really, really tough truth. And we all need to pray for mercy and grace to live it out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're caught in a battle. And it's a battle where Satan wants to destroy us, but your great love wants to protect us and love us and help us grow. Teach us, Lord, to follow Jesus' way, to be compassionate, but also firm. Give us opportunities to share this with grace amongst our family members and friends, amongst those we can talk about. In all this, we cry out for your mercy and grace, confident, Lord, that we can stand firm as we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.